being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 45 imperial japan part 15 the great waltz to bolshevik boogaloo today i'm recording from nikolaevsk Now, maybe I'm telling on myself a little bit too much, but one of my favorite periods of history is right after the Bolsheviks seized power. This is for a bunch of reasons, and the Bolsheviks were a lot of different things, but one thing it was kind of like was if a dedicated group chat of shitposters suddenly seized state power. They were people who were arguably fundamentally not good at anything except writing polemics and arguing with each other, suddenly in charge of an entire country. There are all kinds of stories from this period, some tragic, some tragicomic, and others just outrightly comical. They didn't know how to run a state, and many of their decisions were just outright gaffes or mistakes, and I say that from a place of love, right? The Soviet government in the early period, was constantly getting scammed. <laughs> Another great story is when Trotsky showed up to negotiate the the peace, the Treaty of Brest-Livosk, and he tried to get the German foreign minister to debate him, and he ended up completely botching the negotiations. Like, debate me, bro. So in the summer of 1917, before the October Revolution, The Japanese military and ambassadors actually predicted the outcome of the unrest to a high degree of accuracy. They thought that the provisional government would fall. Not, you know, not exactly like groundbreaking prophecy, right? But they thought also that the Bolsheviks would carry out a coup and that it would be successful. This turned out to be quite accurate and it's probably due to Japan's human intelligence and just sheer proximity to Russia that they had such a good read on the situation when the rest of the world seemed completely caught off guard. Ironically, when the October Revolution did occur, the Japanese government knew they just simply didn't really care. We have the minutes from the Imperial Japanese Advisory Council on Foreign Relations. They were meeting on November 13th 1917. And remarkably, they didn't even find it particularly important to discuss. And it was not for lack of information. They actually didn't care. What they focused on instead was discussing the importance of buying a particular railway line from whichever government ended up in power, you know, through these shuffles. They really wanted to buy that railway line from Russia, whoever was in charge. Now, around this same time, major changes were occurring in Japan. The February Revolution of 1917 coincided with major upheavals in Japan because the Prime Minister, Masatake Tarochi, who, you know, we mentioned him before, when he was Governor General of Korea, he famously said, I will whip you with scorpions to the Koreans in general. Tarochi had overturned election results. In 1917, he undermined Taisho democracy. The public, naturally, was very dissatisfied and questioned the entire constitutional order. 
In the summer of 1917, students from Waseda University occupied the campus and fomented a revolution. It was called the Waseda Revolution. They explicitly compared Tarochi to Alexander Kerensky, the head of the provisional government in Russia. Japanese newspapers published everything the Waseda revolutionaries wrote, with the notable exception of anything they said criticizing the emperor and the emperor system. It's important to note that the Waseda revolutionaries were not explicitly Marxist or, you know, anarcho-syndicalist or anything, and as such, they accomplished nothing. The liberals of the time in Japan, they were arguing that the Japanese monarch was like the British monarch, in that they were modern and democratic and progressive, as contrasted by the Romanov and Habsburg monarchies, the bad monarchies, which were feudal, backwards, and destined to fade away. And as is so common with liberal analysis, it doesn't really hold up at all. Now, the Japanese, like I said, didn't really care about the nature of the new Soviet government until Leon Trotsky announced the cancellation of all debts to foreign governments, which has to go down in history as one of the funniest things to ever happen. Strategically, probably a bad decision. Even bad from like a, you know, from like a pro-Soviet perspective. <laughs> like... Just a massive tactical mistake, but very funny. Kind of like a shitpost or something, right? <laughs> and it's at this point that the Japanese government starts paying attention, because they were owed vast sums of money through the arms trade. Additionally, Mitsui and Mitsubishi property were confiscated. And, like I mentioned last episode, the Bolsheviks started to publish secret treaties, which is clearly like the international equivalent of leaking group chat DMs where you're talking shit about someone, right? I'm telling you, these, these Bolsheviks, they were like shit posters, man. Anyway, the Japanese government was livid, and their advisory council, the same one I mentioned before, they discussed the possibility of intervention in their meetings in December of 1917. At that meeting, they cited the high treason incident of 1910 as a reason to intervene, which is very interesting. The arguments for intervention all came from past, current, or future executives of the South Manchuria Railway Company, and their arguments involved intervening in order to avoid future German or U.S. encroachment in their sphere of influence in Manchuria. It was never really about the Soviets, right? It was about their own power in the region. That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. They discussed setting up some kind of white Russian buffer state slash free state in Siberia. Sort of a shade and, you know foreshadowing of Manchukuo, right? They really wanted that buffer state. The advisory council also discussed using the pretext of protecting Japanese citizens in Siberia as justification. 
This is notable, right? It's timely in the sense that that, of course, is one of the pretexts that Russia used to invade Ukraine. Like, as of recording this that's going on right now, hopefully it doesn't turn into World War III by the time the episode comes out. So you see, as funny as it might have been for the Bolsheviks to publish those secret treaties to renege on all debts and immediately start expropriating property, it was probably not the wisest strategic move, right? I'm not trying to be a backseat revolutionary here, and the Bolsheviks definitely had their backs against the wall on a number of fronts, and we'll definitely get into that in a little bit. But some of this stuff they didn't have to do. They didn't have to expropriate Mitsubishi property right away. You know what I'm saying? So the Japanese government had very accurate information about the Bolsheviks, but the Japanese public did not. The Japanese public learned about all of this through Japanese newspapers. The Japanese newspapers were simply reporting what the London and Shanghai reporters were saying. They were publishing endless fictional horror stories about pogroms, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, they were running hard with the whole Lenin as German agent thing, and they were talking about the very interesting and always recurring psyop of widespread nationalization of women. That always pops up. So the first step that the Japanese government took for intervening in Russia was to send secret agents to every major railway station all along the Trans-Siberian Railway. Then they started funding and providing material assistance to different white Russians during the Civil War. In particular, they really liked and backed Adamon Semenov, who was, you know, one of the generals. He was friends with Baron von Ungern Sternberg, you know, that particular psychopath. But Adamon Semenov, he liked to hand out copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to the Japanese troops which is always interesting. Imperial Japan also wanted to try and undermine Russia through their indigenous Siberian populations, which is interesting when we talked about how Japan, a couple hundred years ago, was afraid of Russia leveraging a fifth column out of the Ainu people, right? Like, interesting. The problem was they didn't really have any connections and they hadn't been preparing for that, so it didn't really go anywhere. And Pan-Asianism was still in its infancy in terms of it being a useful, fake-ass ideological construct. Like, it just... they weren't ready to go with it yet. Skipping ahead a little bit, Simonov later worked for Manchukuo, actually. He was specifically working in the Bureau for Russian Emigrants, which was explicitly under the control of the Russian Fascist Party. Simonov was the Bureau's chairman from 1943 to 1945. In 1945, Soviet paratroopers captured him. He was charged with counter-revolutionary activities and was executed by hanging in 1946. To get back to 1917 and 1918, in January 1918, the Japanese invaded Vladivostok. If you'll recall, that of course is like 
the closest, biggest city in Russia to Japan. It's a coastal town on the Pacific Ocean, right? The Bolsheviks were able to leverage this invasion in order to consolidate power among the factions in favor of the Bolshevik program. Then, in July 1918, President Wilson invited Japan to undertake a joint armed invasion with other countries. From 1918 to 1922, a total of 125,000 troops from 10 different countries invaded the Soviet Union. Technically, Japan broke the agreement by bringing in 72,000 additional troops to hold Vladivostok and the Irkutsk region, but President Wilson didn't press the point and the expeditionary forces were not going to complain, right? So it's a moot point. Let's talk about Sergei Lasso. He was a Moldovan nobleman, he was an officer of the Imperial Russian Army, and he was a Bolshevik officer. He fought against Ottoman Simonov, and Lasso led Bolshevik partisan units in Vladivostok. He also engaged in combat against U.S. expeditionary troops. Lasso and his partisans were able to retake Vladivostok, but Lasso himself was captured by Japanese troops. It was widely believed for many, many years that the Japanese had burned Sergei Lasso alive in the firebox of a steam engine. The historian Tatyana Linkoeva wrote, This incident became a cornerstone of Soviet revolutionary mythology and forever imprinted the negative stereotype of the Japanese in Russian public memory. There is now some evidence to suggest that he was simply shot immediately upon capture rather than being burned alive. In 1967, they made a movie about this called Sergei Lasso. And it's also notable because Andrei Tarkovsky helped write it. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to speak at great length about the Civil War, right? The White Russians were brutal, and we shouldn't kid ourselves about the Red Army either. Civil wars are never clean. And no, I'm not doing like a equivalency thing there. I think you could argue that the White Russians were more brutal, but civil wars are never clean, right? To quote again Tatiana Linkueva, she said, The reality was that Japan's eventual intervention in the Russian Revolution in the summer of 1918, its deep involvement in the Russian Civil War, its military brutality and the subsequent memory of it in Russia and the overextended stay of the Japanese army on Russian territory were one of the major factors in transforming the initial Bolshevik rule into a militarized bureaucratic regime. Unquote. She argues not to make excuses, but like she's arguing pretty convincingly, in my opinion, that the interventions particularly by the Japanese, but also in general, put the Bolsheviks on a war footing. It made them more ready to resort to coercion, even to terror, in order to remain in power. It also consolidated their rule domestically and gave them popular support among the populace, because it 
pretty much was what it looked like, the capitalist classes of the entire world attempting to smother the world's first communist revolution to death while still in its crib. She argued that the success of the revolution and the survival of the Soviet regime was secured not in the West but in the East through the eventual ousting of the Japanese army. In 1920, there was a thing called the Nikolaevsk Incident, which gave the Japanese a pretext to prolong the intervention. Essentially, Japanese forces had occupied the town of Nikolaevsk in order to protect Japanese fishing interests in the region. Naturally, they also said it was to protect the Japanese population there, right? Then, guerrillas and partisan units attacked the town of Nikolaevsk, ultimately killing 700 Japanese soldiers and the town residents, in addition to several hundred Russian citizens. The Japanese made propaganda about the events. They reported that 5,000 were killed, rather than 700. Also, they omitted that Russian citizens had died. Across Japan, there were memorial services held for the brave Japanese settlers of Nikolaevsk. Even the imperial family attended these services. The self-defense of the Japanese people became one of the main justifications for remaining in Russian territory. They would ultimately not leave until 1925, though the conflict would largely be over by 1922. How did the Japanese public feel about this intervention? They mostly opposed it, but mainly for budgetary reasons. It was thought to be an immense waste of money during a recession. And it was not uncommon to call the army and navy tax robbers, and they were widely criticized. And of course, they ultimately lost, which never helps things either. Tatiana Linkueva wrote, the Siberian intervention was a strange war. No clear enemy was identified. Bolshevism and communism were never mentioned, and no greater cause was declared. Although it was an obvious war against Russia and its people, as the violence became indiscriminate, the Japanese government tirelessly and cynically proclaimed its friendship with the Russian people and insisted that it was acting in their interests. Unquote. I should note, too, for diplomatic and economic reasons, this whole time, the Japanese government never officially denounced or even addressed communism at all for like years and years and years, which is such a funny, uniquely Japanese way of handling things. Now, in this period of time, the Soviets were also supporting the Korean and Chinese in their struggles for independence. In this same book I'm quoting, The Revolution Goes East, it says, Historians have largely attributed the rise of Korean and Chinese pro-independence movements, the Korean independence demonstrations on March 1st, 1919, the May 4th movement in China, and the proclamation of an independent Korean government in Khabarovsk in 1920. These historians typically point to the Wilsonian moment of 1919. However, it is obvious that Japanese contemporaries perceived those events quite differently, namely as the direct consequence of the Russian Revolution, and the Bolsheviks' plans 
to implement a world proletarian revolution. For the Japanese leaders, the colonized Koreans were the perfect dagger in the hands of Russian communists pointed at the heart of the Japanese empire. Unquote. To that end, the Japanese were constantly shelling or raiding Korean camps in Manchuria. They also organized the Manchu Homenkai, which is to say the Manchuria People's Protection Society. This was supposed to safeguard the border against bandits, quote-unquote. Like, you remember how Yoshiko Kawashima said she was fighting bandits in Manchuria? The Manchuria People's Protection Society was out-and-out out a death squad, like literally a death squad, because they shot anyone they caught. And wouldn't you know, they were all bandits. Now, lest you ever think war is more important than business, the Japanese government and the Zaibatsu set up shell companies to handle their investments in Russia. These were known as the Russo-Japanese Trading Company, the Far East Business Development Corporation, and the Russo-Japanese Bank. These three shell companies handled mining, oil, forestry, fishery, and transportation needs. These companies were controlled by the Zaibatsu of Japan, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, Furukawa, Kuhara, Sumitomo, the South Manchuria Railway Company, Yokohama Bank, the Bank of Colonial Korea, and so on, right? These deals between the shell companies, the Soviets, and, you know, the Zaibatsu, the deals were brokered by Goto Shinpei. In 1922, while the Japanese troops were still on Russian territory, a Russian and two Japanese sat down in a boardroom in Tokyo to negotiate. No, that's not the setup to a joke, right? The two Japanese were a politician named Seigo Nakano and a journalist named Kamitaro Mitsukawa. The Russian was Vasily Antonov who came to Japan in order to establish a branch of the Far East Republic Telegraph Agency. He was acting in an official-unofficial capacity as representative for the Soviet government. Antonov was authorized to promise to the Japanese government that the Soviets were prepared to morally support national revolutions in Asia but not world proletarian revolutions in Asia, if that makes sense. Maybe I should explain what that would mean. It would essentially mean that they would not oppose certain national revolutions, like, like the Soviets were prepared to say that they were going to accept like the Korean puppet state, right? But here's where it gets interesting. So you remember how I was discussing how there were pro-Russian and anti-Russian factions in Japan, right? The pro-Russian lobby consisted of Goto Shinpei. I mentioned him a minute ago. He was brokering all those deals, right? The pro-Russian lobby was Goto Shinpei as well as his associates, certain Meiji nationalist organizations, as well as the fishing industry, and a lot of what would become pan-Asianist circles. 
They managed to secure the normalization of Soviet-Japanese relations, which would come in 1925. The main issue being that Japanese troops finally, you know, withdrew from Soviet territory. Naturally, the pro-Russian lobby was heavily invested in businesses that all but required the normalization of relations, right? It's also interesting to point out and think about how the Soviet Far East was essentially developed by Japanese capital, like during and after this intervention. Let's talk about Pan-Asianism for a little bit. The Japanese used Pan-Asianism as a justification for their imperial ambitions. The roots of it arguably go back to the 19th century, but Pan-Asianism was probably best formulated by Kametaro Mitsukawa, the aforementioned journalist who was meeting with Antonov, right? Mitsukawa was the preeminent popularizer of Pan-Asianism. He said that it was based on three or so concepts. First, that Asia constitutes culturally, politically, economically, geographically, and racially a single community that shares the same fate. Second, that Pan-Asianism holds that Western imperialism threatened Asia, and that the only defense against Western encroachment was the unity of Asian peoples. Third, Pan-Asianism had strong links with Asian anti-colonial nationalism, though in practice, and as conducted by the Japanese, why, of course the Japanese are going to be leaders in this alliance, right? So, you can see how this would be pretty attractive in theory, right? Like, the idea that, like, one part of Asia is relatively similar to the rest of Asia, that is hard to dispute. The idea that Western imperialism was threatening Asia, hard to argue that point either. And who doesn't like anti-colonial nationalism, right? So this all sounds pretty good, but let's go through Mitsukawa's background to see if anything sticks out to you. So Mitsukawa founded a number of right-wing societies, and he had ties to many Tairiku Ronin, those pro-expansionist adventurers in China. Naniwa Kawashima was one of these guys, right? Mitsukawa had ties to Chinese and Indian revolutionaries who were in exile in Japan. Mitsukawa was involved in a support group for Indian liberation fighters. He was also friends with Mitsuru Toyama. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Toyama, of course, of the Dark Ocean Society. Mitsukawa was also friends with Ryohei Uchida of the Black Dragon Society. Mitsukawa was also friends with Seigo Nakano, the politician who met with Antonov, who we mentioned just a minute ago. Mitsukawa was friends with Shinpei Goto of the pro-Russian clique of, you know, Japanese elites. Mitsukawa was friends with Shumei Okawa, famously the guy who slapped Tojo's bald head. Right. But more importantly, he was a far-right ultranationalist theoretician. So Pan-Asianism developed out of Mitsukawa and Okawa's exposure to Indian anti-colonial exiles. They worked on and developed Pan-Asianism with 
Ikikita, who we had mentioned before. He was another ultranationalist theoretician. Now, as these guys saw it, as they were working on Pan-Asianism, they believed that there were similarities between the Russian and Meiji revolutions. And by the way, by their term, they're calling the Meiji Restoration a revolution, which, you know, most people would not call that a revolution, but we should not be surprised if ultranationalists are playing fast and loose with definitions, right? That's kind of the thing they do. So Pan-Asianism was deeply informed by the fundamentally Marxist framework of exploitive and exploited nations. Like, Pan-Asianism fundamentally uses what is essentially a Marxist framework for understanding these things. The major difference being that they were gung-ho on the nationalism aspect, which was not baked into this framework, right? In some ways it diverges, like it shares the same analysis, but then diverges on what is to be done, to use that phrase, right? And initially, Pan-Asianism was pretty enthusiastic about the nationalist aspects of the Soviet project. But they started to cool their enthusiasm a little bit when the Tuvan People's Republic and the Mongolian People's Republic were formed. And when the Tuvan and Mongolian People's Republics chose to associate with the Soviet Union rather than Japan, why, that placed them in direct competition in terms of winning over the hearts and minds of exploited Asians, right? Also, speaking broadly about Japanese fascism, and spoiler alert, I have a longer episode on that topic coming up, but when people talk about Japanese fascism such as it is, which, you know, Questionable whether that's even an accurate term, right? But I'm not going to address that right now. The interesting thing is that Ikikita gets a lot of the heat for being the founder and main theoretician of Japanese fascism. It absolutely helps that he was executed for being associated with the February 26th incident. But, but... Okawa and Mitsukawa both were way, way closer to the Japanese power elite than Kita ever was. Further, Mitsukawa developed and planned the concept of a buffer state between Japan and Russia. You know, it keeps coming up. They, they want that. They want to set it up. This would eventually be Manchukuo. Mitsukawa was far more influential than Kita ever was. And yet Kita is always held up. And you always got to ask yourself, is the fall guy, is that always the most guilty? And often the answer is no, actually, right? Let's wrap up the episode by talking about the Man of Steel, Stalin, for a little bit. And I think this is the first time I've talked about Stalin. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So, with the death of Lenin... Stalin and Bukharin, who were at that point in an alliance, they started to promote the concept of socialism in one country. Also, arguably due to the requirements of, like, 
statecraft and just existing as a country. Stalin and Bukharin made decisions that led to the Soviet Union toning down the whole international revolutionary rhetoric thing a little bit. And the main driver, like I was getting at, was they didn't want the Soviet Union to be as completely ridiculously ostracized in the international community. They made real steps, not just for show, to distance the Soviet state from the Comintern. I don't blame Cold Warriors necessarily for, like, doubting that or whatever, but at various points, the Soviet state and the Comintern did genuinely have different goals. Another spoiler alert, we are definitely going to get into the details of Comintern politics coming up here shortly. Now, both of these things that Stalin and Bukharin pushed, which is to say, toning down the international revolutionary rhetoric and distancing the Soviet state from the Comintern, Japan, which is to say the leaders of Japan, acknowledged and responded favorably to these things. Another major change was that Lenin considered Japan to be one of the world's worst imperialist powers. Stalin, on the other hand, began to argue that Japan existed not as an independent imperialist force, but as an appendage to other more economically powerful countries. Stalin even tacitly acknowledged some pan-Asianist ideas could have a positive influence in the region. Along the same lines, the United States, which had been considered a relatively neutral country when considered in terms of the proletarian revolution in Western Europe, started to be viewed under this Stalin-Bukharin clique as the Soviet Union's main political enemy. Now this is really complicated because like in a certain sense Lenin and Stalin are both kind of right about Japan or they both are grasping different aspects of the underlying truth or something, you know, like these changes in analysis or emphasis are not necessarily like one was wrong and then the other backtracked for purely mercenary reasons, right? Like, these are complicated questions, and I'm not, like, necessarily going to die on the hill of which one's analysis was more correct or something. To be fair, I'm not even sure I know myself, but I would argue fundamentally, if I had to guess, if you had to press me, I would argue that Japan was, to an extent, kind of an appendage of other more economically powerful countries, and yet it was also one of the worst imperial offenders. And I don't really know how to reconcile that, so I'm just not going to, right? Here's what is interesting, though. In 1925, Stalin was interviewed by a Japanese journalist. In that interview, he said that Japan was an oppressed nation, and that they could form the basis for an alliance between the two countries, that is to say, the Soviet Union and Japan. He said, an alliance of the Japanese people with the peoples of the Soviet Union 
would be a decisive step on the way to the liberation of the East. Such an alliance would mean the beginning of the end for world capitalism. This alliance would be invincible. Unquote. You know, I'm not trying to overly defend this here, right? But, like, you can technically find almost any world leader making similar promises or discussions to all types of other nations, right? And, of course, this was in the era where the Soviet Union was trying to get friends anywhere they could, right? So... To that end, Stalin had his foreign minister, Chicharin, attempt to make an alliance with Japan. He tried to bait them by discussing Japan's hopes for rooting out Anglo-American power in Asia. Of course, the Soviet Union was stuck playing the same great game of diplomacy as everyone else. The waltz doesn't just stop when the communists take power, right? Also... Again, to be fair to Stalin here, he made a critique in the same interview with the Japanese newspaper. He wasn't only kissing ass. He made a critique of the Pan-Asianist program, saying the slogan, Asia for Asians, embraces not only that side, but it also contains two additional elements that are absolutely incompatible with Bolshevik strategy. First, it does not address the issue of Eastern imperialism. As if by considering Eastern imperialism better than Western, it is not necessary to fight against Eastern imperialism. Second, this slogan instills in the workers of Asia a feeling of distrust to the workers of Europe. It alienates the former from the latter, tears apart the international ties between them, and thus undermines the very foundations of the liberation movement. The revolutionary tactics of the Bolsheviks are aimed not only against Western imperialism, but against imperialism per se, including Eastern. They work not to weaken international ties between Asian workers and the workers of Europe and America, but to widen and strengthen those ties. Unquote. The historian, Tatiana Linkueva, she summarized this best. She said, Despite the nationalist bent that Soviet state-building took under Stalin's guidance, Stalin was, after all, a true believer in communism and emphasized the imperialist nature of the Japanese capitalist state. However, if and when needed, Stalin was ready to collaborate with Japan to some extent. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the case, right? Very interesting stuff. Now, for sources today, first and foremost, I used the excellent book, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism by Tatiana Linkoeva. I also used, and don't laugh, Stephen Kotkin's biographies on Stalin, as well as a bunch of other books that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check out my Patreon. For $5 a month, you can get double the episodes. Now, I need to be on my way to Irkutsk, See you next week, and God bless.